I don't mean this in a sensational way, but your homes are under attack. Your marriages, your parenting, your plans for a Christian household are under assault from the world. And primarily, these attacks are coming against you in the form of lies. It's the way that the enemy takes aim at our world today. And I think it would not be hard to make the case that an enormous number of those lies, perhaps the majority of them, are leveled at how we think about gender and sex and roles in the home. I think that it is true that you and I are powerless to stop those lies from coming against us. But we can prepare our minds and our households to be resilient when they come. And that's what I hope to accomplish in this series. I started uh, last week in Genesis 1 and 2. This week will be in Genesis 2 and and moving on uh, next week in chapter 3. But I said last week that a hope, which is an enormous reach, that I would hope to come out of this sermon is that we would uh, be able to build indestructible households, and that can only be accomplished by the Lord's good work. I showed last week from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that we were made, we were made, men and women both, to work, expand, and multiply. And this is to be a joint effort by both man and woman who are equally created in the image and likeness of God. This week, though, we will begin to see how the man and the woman were designed by God to take on different roles in the pursuit of that creation mandate. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 15 to 25. As is usual here at the Mission Church, I will read through the text we're covering this morning out loud. You can follow along with me there, and then we'll go back through the text, a verse or two at a time, and I'll seek to unpack it with some very specific questions in mind. Because we could spend weeks unpacking all the particulars and the details about what has been created and how and why and amazing things, but what we're asking about as we read through it this time is, Lord, what ought we see in here that concerns our marriages, our household? That's what we're asking. So Genesis chapter 2, I'll read verses 15 through 25. Uh, Please follow along with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are delving into what I think ought to be very familiar territory. The relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. But Father, in our day, as I shared in the introduction of this sermon, I think that we have been so lied to for so long that it is almost challenging for us to discern truth from error in our minds, perhaps. And so, Father, we need extra help this morning for us to see things how they ought to be seen. Lord, help us to Use your word to shine light on reality around us rather than trying to take what we see in the world and make it fit into your word. And so we need your help to do that well, to do that rightly. Be with me now, Father, as I seek to show great love to my brothers and sisters in walking through this passage. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of our passage today in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So again, let's observe a bit of what we see in these few verses. God takes the man and he puts him in the garden that he had planted, and he put him there for what purpose? To work it and keep it. Work is a good holy and honorable thing. It was present even prior to sin entering into the world. Spent a lot of time on that last week. And here is mentioned at least one tree. We know this is a a pair of trees that are specially placed in the garden. We saw last week is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These are distinct trees that aren't found outside of the garden that God places there. One is being mentioned here. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, he tells Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of that one you shall not eat. He mentions this tree. Here we see law and consequence enter into the biblical account. Law, don't eat that fruit. Consequence, or you will die. I'm sure you're aware that this is going to be hugely important in the next chapter, when the law is broken and the consequences are doled out. And so we'll see that unpacked next week. Verse 18 continues our narrative. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now you may have heard this noted before, but this is the very first thing in all of creation that God calls not good. It's actually something that is not good in a sinless paradise. Interesting category, right? In fact, seven times before this occurrence, the language that something is good is mentioned about creation. God creates, uh, creates the earth. He creates light from darkness. He says it's good. He creates a uh, distinction between land and sea. He says that is good. He continues to create animal kind and all the things of the cosmos, and he says that is good. It is good. It is good. When he finishes creating man and woman together, he says that is very good. And here's the first time he says something is not good. And what is it that's not good? For man to be alone. 
I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so here God pauses in his created work. He pauses for dramatic effect. In fact, if you were Adam here right now, you might think creation's done. What's going to happen? It looks like it's finished. But God's not done. He has no intent to be finished. He has more created work to do. He pauses to show us something important. And Adam, uniquely of all creation, gets to experience life without the finished work of creation done. What happens next is then quite interesting. Look at verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay. Now first observation in this few verses we're reminded that these animals, like Adam, are made from the ground. See that? Why do they have to mention that? I think, there's, I think it's important. We'll see. But right now, he just reminds them, hey, all those creatures he took from the ground, just like Adam who came from the dust, we'll log this for now. We'll see it in another verse. Second observation here is God brings the animals to Adam. He brings them. What an interesting thing to say. Why? Why does he do this? Well, why not just send Adam out to observe each animal in its own habitat? See, verse 19 specifies that it says it very clearly. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast, the field. He brought them to him. He didn't send them out like some National Geographic documentarian to stand in the bushes and look out. Ooh, that looks like a zebra, right? Man stands... And these animals are marched before him in some kind of parade. Why? Because it's a sign of authority. It's a sign of authority. In the military today, we do something similar. Whenever a high-ranking officer takes command of a unit, the entirety of the unit, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 50,000 men, will march before him in a parade. And it's a way for the men to first meet and show deference to their commander, and a way for that new commander to inspect those who are newly under his authority. You've probably seen videos or movies and maybe been present for this before if you were in the military or present for some of those parades. Similar thing is happening here. All of creature kind, who's already been stated to be under the dominion and the authority of the man, is now marched before him. The second thing, further exercise of his authority here, is that Adam names the animals. And this, of course, directly relates to his charge to subdue the earth and all animal kind within it. Naming, especially in the Bible, is very significant. It's a demonstration of authority. This is why in the Bible, when people are taken as slaves, often they are renamed by their new master. You might remember Daniel when we walked through that sermon series. Um, and Hezariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, that was their Hebrew names. They were given new names when they came under the control of their new master, Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Belteshazzar. This is significant in the Bible, and this is important here as well. Naming is a significant thing. The animals do not name themselves. They do not self-identify. He tells them what they are. 
That's an exercise of authority. But we see something else here too, and probably more significant as we watch this play out, and probably why this verse is put in here for us. At the end of the animal naming parade, what is determined? No other creature on earth is suitable for Adam. None of them can adequately cure his loneliness or be his proper helper. Now, of course, God already knew this. It's not as though God's like, well, there's a few potential prospects. Let's just see. No, God knew this. He's doing this for the sake of Adam and for all of creation. Adam is watching each of the animal kind to stand before him and go, all of them have an other except for me. This means that there is a deficit in creation. Adam doesn't know it, but God's not done performing. He has one more critical act to perform before his Sabbath rest will commence. Verse 21 and 22 tells us about that created work. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. A few observations here. God creates woman in a way different than he created everything else. He created her from man. She is the only creature in all of the created order that is made from another creature. Remember just a moment before, Moses, who's authoring this here, found it necessary to remind us all those animals, every single one that marched before Adam, were from the ground, like he was from the dust. But Eve is one degree removed from that dust. She alone is made from another creature, from Adam. God did not make man and woman at the same time. That's what's going down here. It's important to see this, as he did with every other animal on earth. God then brings her to the man. If you were to do the Bible study kind of method and just circle the words that repeat themselves here, you could circle brought. God brought. God brought the animals before Adam, and God brings, God brought the woman before the man. Why? For the exact same reason. He does not release this newly created woman into the wild for Adam to go on and hunt. Wakes him up. All right, she's out there. Good luck. Adam awakes. God brings the woman. In fact, our wedding ceremonies today act this out in our modern traditions. When a father marches his daughter down the aisle in his arm and then hands her over to the authority of her new husband. That's what's being acted out. God brought Eve to the man. Every marriage ceremony, every wedding ceremony I've ever conducted has had that moment in there. Who gives this woman to this man? And the typical response is, her mother and I, right? Father kisses the daughter and now hands her into the authority of a new man. Genesis 2.23 continues, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is not mere symbolism. The language is poetic, to be sure, but it is not figurative what took place. She is not simply like the man. I more like him than the rest of the creatures. She is literally from him. Bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. And she is the only woman in history who ever comes from a man. 
And here we go. For the record, the way that our world today views men and women is a direct result and a necessary result, I would argue, of their rejection of the creation account. If you reject creationism in favor of evolution, this is a major issue for you. And I'm saying this to Christians too, even if you hold to some level of theistic evolution. Well, there's evolution, God just directed it. That's theistic evolution. I think this is a problem for you. Brothers and sisters, if that's you, if you are still flirting with Darwinianism, I would heartily warn you here. The godless theory of Darwinianism has done great damage to the faith of many. If you concede that the woman came from a fish through the natural means of evolution rather than from a man by God's created design, you have surrendered the high ground to the enemy in this category. Now, of course, I'm not saying that you will be unable to survive in this world with your faith intact if you hold to that view, but you have granted the enemy a strategic advantage over you. Of course, Adam and Eve weren't real people. Of course, she, he didn't, she didn't come from him, but we should think of it like, kind of like that. You have some tenuous holds. Verses 24 and 25 continue. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is sort of a summary, a couple of verses regarding marriage. In fact, Jesus quotes this exact verse in the book of Matthew, when he's asked to deal with the issue of no-fault divorce. The man here is told to leave his father, leave his mother, to leave and cleave, hold fast to his wife, become one flesh. This, of course, does not mean that either husband or wife are to reject any connection with their, their families of origin. It means that they are to go together and create something new. The idea that a woman would leave her family to join his family was expected. The uniquely biblical idea that he too was to leave his family is special. We'll talk about this in future weeks, but there's a lot of lies about, a lot of revisionist history in the way people look back at the world. And one of the things they say is, you know, women used to always be be, um, uh, possessions of man in many cultures. This is kind of undone in Hebrew culture by the way this is represented. They leave together. He also likewise leaves his father and mother, and they start something new. It's quite profound. They are to hold fast to one another. He holds fast to his wife. They become one flesh. I want to quote for you uh, something I read from Ray Ortland Jr., who spoke to this idea. He says this in, in regards to that language. It is the profound fusion of two lives into one shared life together by the mutual consent and covenant of marriage. It is the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new circle of shared existence with one's partner. That's pretty good language for that. This most certainly implies sexual union. The hold fast, one flesh, certainly that's a part of what's in mind here. And that is actually echoed in the following verse. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a reminder of that. This speaks to the intimacy and respect and unguarded familiarity and comfort with one another. They felt totally safe with one another. And why shouldn't they? Not only had they never had an argument, had they never been hurt by one another, they had never experienced hurt from anyone 
for any reason. And in this idyllic situation, things don't stay perfect for long. The very next verse would take us into chapter 3, which we'll cover, uh, we'll begin covering next week. Nevertheless, there are some things that we can see right here in the garden, right here before sin, that a direct application for our day. Today, I'm just going to cover two. I'm just going to cover two points of application that we can draw from this regarding marriage. One directly pointed at men, one directly pointed at women. That's what I'm going to do here, because there's only two. Just for the record. First is this. Men, you were made to lead your wife and children. You were made to lead, to go first, to model, to represent God's authority in your household. In fact, this is how, men, you are to serve them. They need for you to take responsibility for them and for your household. They need this. This is not aspirational. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if you worked really hard and after 10 years of lots of efforting, uh, you became the leader? You were made for this. You were made to be the leader of your home. Your family needs for you to go first into the work that God has given you. Man was created first. That's what we saw here in this particular passage. And this order of creation is not the least bit arbitrary. It is not as though God, having known there needs to be male and female, that's how you procreate, that's how you multiply, needing for that to happen, he goes, well, we need one to go first. Who is it going to be? Flips a coin, male, he'll do, go. That is not the arbitrary nature of the created order. There is great meaning and significance in the fact that God made man first and from man made woman. And that's the way the rest of the Bible talks about this event. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So the Bible treats this fact as having purpose, a purpose that applies to us in our marriages today. Brothers, and I'm going to speak directly to brothers, sisters, you'll benefit from hearing the way I'm speaking to the brothers on this here, but brothers, there is this idea in modern evangelicalism, in modern Western Christian church life, that a husband is to be the spiritual head of his household. Have you heard that language? I've heard that language my entire life. I grew up in the Christian church. Lots of things I'm very grateful for. But I heard this language time and time again. And essentially, what that meant is that a man is permitted to cast the tie-breaking vote in his home when it comes to the spiritual matters, uh, when it comes to what church to attend, what Bible passage to read through in family worship time, uh, maybe uh, what small group would be a best fit for his family. And so that's the language that I've heard, and perhaps you have too. Man is to be the spiritual head of the household. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that kind of language. Because it's wholly insufficient. Let me show you Ephesians 5, 23 through 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Do you know what that word everything means in Greek? Everything. The wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is not just spiritual matters, brothers. This is not just, oh, this is one of those spiritual things. Click, uh, a, a, a switch flipped. Oh, now time to engage. Time to, time to lead. Time to model well. Time to, time to extend some dis- decision-making decisiveness. Time to, time to bring that to bear here. Oh, that's, that's not one of those things. Click, flip off. She, she, I don't know. She, she'll tell you. Brothers, not so. You are to lead out in your family in all of those areas to protect your family, to provide for your family, to decide where you live, what they eat, how they dress, how you spend your money, how you educate your children, how you practice hospitality, how you share the gospel with others. In everything, you are to bear chief responsibility for your household and specifically for your wife. To paraphrase another Christian pastor, John Piper said something to this effect. If Jesus were to check in on how the household is doing in any of these areas by showing up at your house, knocking on the front door, and your wife were to answer the door, he would ask, "Uh, may I speak with your husband? Because the husband bears the chief responsibility for his wife and for his children. Brothers, you have been commissioned by God to be the head And remember, I use that language, spiritual head of household, not the head of your household, head of your wife. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, 3, because you're going to notice this is not merely the head of the household. It's not as though the family's an organization, the husband's the CEO of that organization. It is not so cold and impersonal. The Bible repeatedly says that the husband is the head of the wife. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says it this way, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So brothers, it is chiefly your responsibility to decide not only the things we call spiritual matters, but to be the lead authority-bearer decision-maker and model of submission to Christ in your home. In no other sphere has God delegated to the officers this breadth of responsibility and authority. There isn't one. This is what's crazy. If you're to look into the world, the, the most authoritative king in the history of the world has not been granted this level of authority in his sphere. No king has been granted by God the authority to determine what his citizens wear when they go to sleep, what church they will attend, what books they should or shouldn't read. And so, there is no equivalent of this among creatures. And brothers, notice, even even your children. It's easy just to kind of, we think household, wife and kids, wife and kids, and yes, to be sure. I even put it in the note here. We are to lead your wives and your children. But notice the head language. You are the head of your wife. You're not the head of your son and daughter in the same way, in the same way. Why? Because someday she, your daughter, will go have another head. And someday your son, hopefully, God will, will go out and he will be the head of someone else, his wife. The permanent and exclusive headship is designed 
between husband and wife. And so here's the problem with, if you look at this, the, if there's no created equivalent to this. Uh, there's nothing else that we can look at and go, oh, it looks like that. What's the problem then? If you are looking, brothers, if you are looking for good examples of this in the world, the only place you can possibly find it is in the right ordered Christian household. It's the only place you can find it. So what does that mean then? If Christian households don't look that way, you have no examples. You you see what I mean? But understanding this rightly should change everything. Let me say it this way. If I were to tell you brothers, men, next week we are going to war. We've been given orders. You, you brother, your name here, has been assigned to be a part of a unit. That is to work as a team bearing equal responsibility to go accomplish a mission for the war effort. Now, you would probably rightly feel a weight about that. Whoa, mission accomplished. Oh, goodness, I got to accomplish a mission for the war. But what if I were then to go, oh, I'm sorry, I misread this. I misread the orders. Actually, you are going to be leading a team to accomplish a mission. The chief responsibility for success or failure, and even the very lives of the men involved in that unit will be on your head. Now, how do you feel? Anyone but a fool would feel the weight of that responsibility so much more. And that, Christian brothers, is what you need to feel. If you ever run into a young man who kind of takes uh, marriage kind of flippantly, yeah, marriage, I got this down. No, you don't. You need to take this seriously. Lives, at least one, and hopefully, Lord willing, many more, are going to be entirely under your authority in many ways. They're going to be your responsibility. Do Do you get that? Do you realize the weight and the burden of that? We've got to take this seriously, brothers. Brothers, if this challenge doesn't wake you up and get you to ditch the video games and the hours mindlessly wandering the web and the days invested in the fruitless, uh, useless frivolities of hobbies that have no eternal value and take your role as a husband and father seriously, I don't know what will. If you were sitting there playing the video game and someone would go, we're going to war next week, you're in a unit. Oh, you're going to war and you're going to lead the unit. Yeah, I got it, I got it, I'll lead, I'll lead. You all see the problem. Brothers, in the text, we haven't even gotten into sin yet. And so we are, we're going to have to unpack this quite a bit more when we see what does this look like in the event, in, in the, the potential event, you're not a perfect leader. This whole thing starts to go sideways, and we're going to have to spend some time there. But brothers, this was the design And it does carry over into our day. It's just going to be a lot harder now. Much more in future weeks on how, how, brothers, we are to exercise this authority in our homes, okay? Women, ladies, my sisters, women, you were made to follow your husband. You were made to submit to him. That's what you were made for. You were made to come after him. And take his, you were not made to name the animals. 
You were, you were made to refer to the animals by the name he decided. And we see this in a few ways in this text. First, the created order, which we've already talked about. We've already mentioned this. He was made first, and that's meaningful. He literally went before the woman. Uh, consequently, this is why it's very natural, natural in history uh, for, for men to be married to women who are slightly younger than them. I, I don't think there's any sin if you marry someone who's slightly older, but it's why when you think about marriage, and it's why when I even talk to my children about like marriage and, and uh, talk to them about like uh, who would be a potential suitor, anytime that a name comes up, ha, huh, I'm, I'm a month older than him, I can't possibly marry him, that comes to mind, you go, well, the reason that comes to mind is because of these obvious things that are built into us. Somebody who's further along and hopefully maturity and experience, hopefully you'd expect that that might be a little bit more suitable for that. That's why it's very typical. It goes down that way. Not only do we see the order of creation speaking to this following, ladies, that you're to follow, but second, we also see that God made her to be a helper fit for him and not the other way around. That's actually important. What does he say? I will make a helper fit for him. Man was not made to be the woman's helper. Woman was made to be the man's helper. And that actually is really important. Again, not arbitrary. She is to subordinate herself to his God-given task. Now, there, to be sure, will be plenty of ways in which both a husband and wife will mutually help each other. So, the, so, the, so the, the deadbeat guy sitting on the couch, woman brings the groceries into the uh, driveway. Hey, can you help me? Not my job to help you. No, no, no. I am not saying that at all. But in this created mandate, it is the woman who is to subordinate herself to the task given to the man and not the other way around. And this will be really important as we see how sin corrupts this and how this will play out in future weeks. Now, you know this, don't you? Some will cry out, that's demeaning. It's, it's, it's making women inferior. That is untrue. That's not true. Scripture refers to God as man's helper. Multiple times. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He is our ever-present help in time of need. We see this all over the Old Testament. God steps in and helps us. And what's actually taking place when God helps mankind? What's, what's taking place? In a very real sense, when he operates as our helper, he subordinates himself to our need. He stoops to our level. God condescends to fulfill the needs of man. And what great love is expressed by that. This is the heart of Philippians Two, which is such a great and important thing to know about the gospel. You must know this. Look at Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Servant! Being born in the likeness of men. If you're not a believer today, you need to know this. Your sin has put a divide between you and God. A divide, a chasm so great, you deserve hell and death 
as a result of your sin. Your sin, to say it clearly, is a major problem, and it is your problem. But God, in the gospel, makes your problem his problem. God demonstrates his love for us in sending his perfect son to live a perfect life, to go to the cross and bear the weight of your problems. Did he die for his sins? No, Jesus did not. Jesus didn't have any sins to die for other than yours and mine. That's why he died for ours. He took your problems and mine on his shoulders onto the cross, bearing responsibility for those things. It's amazing all of the ways in which the gospel shows itself in marriage. And here, ladies, you know that when God condescends, when he empties himself, when he takes on the form of a servant, even unto a humiliating death, he has in no way violated his intrinsic worth. He has not made himself less valuable. If you're not a believer today, you need to see the image of Christ on a cross as a beautiful wonderful display of love from God that he condescended to meet our need. And you need to repent of the sins that put him there and turn in faith to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And just as he died and was risen three days later, you too can be raised to eternal life. It is your only hope to surrender to a God who made your sin problem his sin problem. Sisters, sisters then, in the same way when a woman subordinates herself to the husband, when she submits to him, she is in no way devaluing herself. It it does not make her inferior to the man. She is displaying the gospel and how God helps us. And this kind of submission is supposed to be on display for the world to see how the gospel works. And only a fool would watch a person serving in this way and see it as devaluing. When a man holds a door open for a woman, do you go, Psh, look at that, look at that man. No dignity in him. No, obviously, he has no value. He's opening the door for her. No, we say that's a good man. When, when, a, when a woman gets down on her knee to, to wipe the, the blood off of the scraped knee of her little child who fell down or, or wipe some boogers off his nose, do you go, Psh, Look at that woman making herself grovel on the floor. No, you say, that's wonderful. Sisters, if your children are having a hard time showing proper obedience and submission to you and to your husband, and you're trying to figure out why, I would suggest starting here. Because your submission is not only supposed to be something that's privately between you and your husband, it's supposed to be on display. Perhaps your children don't see a very good example of obedience and submission. Start there. Now, in case you didn't know this, the world hates this stuff. In fact, I think that it is super likely. Some of you may feel the hair on the back of your neck go up when I read this. Whether you agree or disagree, you might go, oh my goodness, can't you say that out loud? Why is that? Why is it that the world, and in your flesh, your sinful flesh, hates this ordering with a white-hot rage. Because the enemy learned a long time ago, one chapter after where we have been, that if he can trick the woman into feeling dissatisfied with her God-given place, he can burn the whole home to the ground. 
That means, sisters, your satisfaction in this is absolutely essential. Your help is not a menial task. The man is incapable, wholly insufficient, to accomplish the work God has assigned him apart from your help and your support. Sometimes when you use that word helper or help or support, assistance needed, you might get into the mind a picture of uh, dad out in the yard doing yard work, and then mom sends the two-year-old out, let, let, let your two-year-old help. <sighs> okay, um, try not to make a mess of the leaves, right? That's, that's not the kind of help the woman was made to offer. The man is not able to do the work, expand, multiply without her. This is why, this is, this is why Adam celebrates, now at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's a helper suitable for him. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 12 says it this way. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. I used this last week. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. You see? It is not possible. In one generation, the entire plan blows up if men and women don't work together to accomplish God's plan. You and I have been lied to by the world around us. We've been told that anything that gets in the way, sisters, of you pursuing whatever you think would make you happy is oppression. You go, girl. You do you. But Eve fell for the same lie. Don't repeat her error. God does not want your half-hearted, reluctant compliance. He wants cheerful obedience. He wants for you to sacrifice your wants, your dreams, your desires for something better. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If God made women for a purpose, that is possible for you to not seek that same purpose. And it is critical for us to want what God wants for us. Sisters, a stable, godly woman who takes joy in her role as helper, cheerfully submits to her husband, is a whopping threat to the enemy's plan. Landing the plane here. This home ordering is not merely aspirational. It is inescapable. I said this earlier. Inescapable. In other words, it's established. It has been designed by God to be this way. Here's what that means. Husbands, you are the head of your wife. You are the leader in your household. You are. Like it or not. You may be leading poorly, but you are a leader. You don't get the choice of whether or not you want to be the leader of your home. And so to be very precise with this language here, as much as I can, this cannot be abdicated. You can live your life as though you have abdicated your authority but you cannot not be the head of your wife. Make sense? Sometimes guys use that language. Oh, you've, you've abdicated. You've abdicated. Well, you can't. You can only act as though it's not your authority any longer. You can only act as though you are not the leader of your household. And brothers, it must be corrected. Sisters, find joy in being your husband's helper. Find joy in submitting to your husband. 
It's a sinful world. Good luck. We're going to get into that next week. Seriously. It's a genuine challenge. This is the problem with the fall. And just to give away the sermon next week, men, you fail at leading. And women, you fail at submitting. Men don't want to lead. Women don't want to submit. That's the summary, if you didn't know. And so it's going to get real bad real quick. And there's abuse, and there's neglect, and there's misapplication, there's misunderstanding. But we must start with the foundation. We must see it, as it said here. So that means, sisters, when you take leadership in the home, you're not being a good leader, you're being a bad follower. It's not a virtue to do those things. So many women think that if their husbands are not leading well, or not up to the standard, they observe a deficit, they observe a lack in the home. They should take the lead. Don't fall for that. That's not what you're doing. It's not what you should do. You should help. Riches and that semantics, definitely not just semantics, and we'll have to talk more about that. It's an opportunity to watch God's plan on display, even if it's maddening in the face of sin. Briefly, to single men and single women. Single men, you might know that in the workplace, it's common for you to have to start at the bottom of the totem pole and work your way up, right? You're not the boss day one. You start at the bottom, you work your way through the whole rank structure, and eventually, maybe someday, you'll get up there. This is not the way it works in the household. It's not the way it works. You are given the authority day one. The day you're hired, you are now the leader. Carry that, brothers. Start practicing now before you are married. Spend time with other brothers to learn, to study this, to figure out what right God-honoring leadership looks like in the home. Figure that out. Get it settled as much as you can in your youthful self, but take this seriously. If you've ever wondered why the Christian woman you've been pursuing is not interested in you, be slow to judge, brothers. Perhaps she is not interested because she doesn't see someone worth following Go make yourself a man worth following. Then return back to that dating pool, so to speak. Single women, pick a leader to follow. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for a head, a leader. That's what you need. This is not just a guy who's gaga over you, not just a guy who makes you feel pretty, feel good, not just a guy who will coddle you, not just a guy who makes you feel like whatever favorite, favorite romance kind of movie or novel or idea or song you have in mind. No, more than that, more. If you were to have 10 potential future suitors or husbands in mind, all right, I, I know some guys, maybe it could be someone like that, maybe. If I were to pause and say, picture those 10. Now pause for a second and let me ask you, which of them would you want to be your boss 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And if you were like, oh, well, none of them, then don't pursue them. Is your husband your boss? No, not like that. His role is far weightier. If you don't want to have him as a boss, don't even think about him for a suitor. Brothers, you are designed to lead your wife and children. Sisters, you are designed to follow your husbands. And if this wasn't a part of your wedding, it should have been part of your vows. And even if it was, this must be far more than a nod to an antiquated ceremonial tradition. Long after the wedding day is over, it must be a day in and day out admission and exercise. Nevertheless, this was God's design for man and woman from the beginning. Earlier I said that I put some questions in the app, and I broke those down. Husband, wife, 
single men, single women. So sons and daughters are even in there. You can take a look at them. Hopefully they would serve you well. Goal is to come out of this and continue the process, thinking through this. Walk through this with me. We're about to get into some even weightier stuff next week when we see what this looks like in a world full of sin and corruption. And when we aren't like Adam and Eve anymore in in chapter 2, because in chapter 2, Adam loves leading and does it perfectly. And in chapter 2, Eve loves following and does it perfectly. And that doesn't last for long. We're going to talk through how men take responsibility, how women are to help and submit in later weeks, so I know we've barely scratched the surface of this really critical topic. But if we don't start with this foundation, I fear that we would lose somewhere further down the line. Let's pray. Father, we love you and your word. We ache to submit to what it teaches. Help us to align to it. Help us to be quick to discern between truth and error. I am I'm certain there is pain in marriages and households right now in our church. Father, I'm, I'm certain. I know by names. I know people. I know myself. And so, Father, we need a lot of healing and a lot of help. We need a lot of working through. And so please send your spirit to do work in the hearts of my brothers and my sisters that we may build your kingdom beginning with our homes. Returning to the creation mandate and the new covenant version of it, the, the great commission that still must begin in the home. So Lord, help us align rightly to these things. And so bring you great glory and restore our joy, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.